Hi, this is Ben Max here from Gotham Gazette. I'm joined by Joseph Vitteridi, uh, the author of The Pragmatist, Bill de Blasio's Quest to Save the Soul of New York, book coming out soon about Mayor Bill de Blasio. Uh, Joe, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk a little bit about your impressions of Mayor de Blasio, but obviously also a lot about how uh, you wrote this book about him and, and what the book is all about. One thing that I'm really trying to wrestle with here as the mayor's first term comes to an end, and I wonder what you, how you think about this is, should he be more popular than it seems like he is? Gee, that's a, almost a philosophical question. Um, I'm sure he thinks so. Um, polling is, is very complicated, and I, I think we're living in a period where there's a general dismay among the public about government and politics in general that gets reflected in every polling event we have. There's good reason for it, given what's going on in Washington and other places. And so it's, it's very hard for public officials to get very much above or even at the 50% approval rating. Um, you know, it's when we talk about his popularity, you can look at it in terms of the polls, and I don't think it's ever going to go above 50, much people, above 50%. I would predict it will hover there. Um, the other side of it is that um, he is seen as being strong enough so that there is not any, what appears to be at this point, a viable candidate to seriously challenge him. There are candidates, obviously. Um, and so he's in a very safe spot. Uh, in terms of his electoral process, prospects. And um, that's kind of the um, oddity of the whole situation. Do you think he deserves more credit than he's getting for the agenda that he's moving ahead? Or do you think that, um, you know, people are rightfully skeptical about government and there's things to be wary about with him and so you understand some of the the ways in which people who, you know, may not be necessarily pining for someone else, but still aren't that fond of him. You know, I think people have to decide that to themselves. Um, and that's why it's important from my perspective as somebody who studies government and had a particular interest in New York City and mayoral leadership over the years, um, is that you have to see him in historical context. And we tend to be very short-sighted um, but, you know, keep in mind, this is not just a book about Bill de Blasio. Um, you know, the, the subtitle, Bill de Blasio's Quest to Save the Soul of New York, is as large on the cover as, as uh, the, the pragmatist itself. And um, that's important because what I was trying to do here was to tell a story about the rise fall and regeneration of progressivism in New York, which I think is very deep in the soul of New York, that has wavered at points, but has always been there, even in the midst of the fiscal crisis, when uh, Ed Koch was mayor, and Ed Koch would do things that would be seen as somewhat provocative and somewhat distasteful, even, uh, when it came to racial politics. You know, New York has the most significant uh, effort to build housing 
in the history of the country almost, uh, except for what went on during the Depression. And that was one of, that was during the bad years. So we have this uh, fiscal crisis comes about, and I think the history is important, and that's why I devoted three chapters in the book to the history of New York and the various mayors, who I think are really a window into understanding New York at particular points in time. And so um, what we have here, um, after the, the what I would consider the, um, liberalism or progressivism being challenged after the, a serious fiscal crisis where we almost went bankrupt, we see the first turn of events where you have progressive government in New York. And this is following 20 years of Rudy Giuliani and... Mike Bloomberg, which is quite significant um, when you think of the turnabout. And that's why I think history is important. And so when you look at what happened after the election of, of, of um, de Blasio, and as part of that, the election of a progressive city council, which progressives were trying to do since the 1990s, that history I write about, third-party movements uh, linked to labor, since we changed the city uh, um, um, charter in 89, where we, we developed, we eliminated the Board of Ed, which was an executive body, and we came in with a, uh, a city council that was larger. And, the, and I worked with that, I was a consultant on, on that charter commission. Mm-hmm. And we expanded the city council from 35 to 51. The, the idea was that you'd have a more representative city council representing a more growingly diverse New York City population. And so if you go back to uh, some of the efforts uh, that were launched in those days, um, you see that this this march towards progress has been going on for a long time. Uh, And we finally have, in 2013, not only a progressive mayor, who I think is undeniably a progressive, you have uh, a city council which is there to support pretty much his most of his agenda, and a leader in the city council, uh, Mark Beverito, uh, who's very much aligned with his with what he wants to do. And there there are major changes. Um, one of the things I looked at was spending priorities, and I didn't rely on my own analysis. I um, I asked the independent budget office to. Uh, Look, present, give me some data on this. Um, there was obviously a, a switch in uh, spending on uh, what we would, what economists would call redistributive programs, uh, more towards uh, that would would accommodate the needs of people who ha- who were being challenged economically or socially, um, and so that. Um, that, that change is marked. You can't deny it. There's a change on police policy. There's a change. There's a more of investment in housing. Spends more in housing and homelessness than anybody in the history of the city. So there's a definite change. Is it enough? That, again, becomes, you know, almost a philosophical question um, that people need to decide on their own. Right, and that's where in the election that we're having right now, you know, there are detractors and there have been detractors who are coming from de Blasio's left. And, you know, that's where I think 
calling him a pragmatist, you know, gets at the heart of what some of the some disillusioned people on his left, um, you know, have some qualms about supporting him further because they feel like he's been um, a little less revolutionary maybe than than they thought. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think, as I say in the book, he gets some of his most severe criticism from people on the left. Um, so, so let so you talk about. Um, that he's a little bit hard to define. You you sort of settle on obviously the title of the book, calling him pragmatist. You you toyed with this term um, pragmatist. Um, talk about that a little bit. I mean, what's the difference between pragmatist and pragmatist? Well, I had originally thought of making the title of the book, and my editor said that's a little bit too far fetched. And I took his advice because he's a very experienced editor at Oxford University Press. Um, I had planned to leave it in the in the. Uh, in a one uh, place in the book, saying he needs his own terminology, and then we changed it by accident almost because when my copy editor saw the word pragmatist, she thought it was a typo and changed it to <laughs> pragmatist. And I I missed it when I read for the I don't know how many times I've read that manuscript, uh, and it stayed as pragmatist. But um, what I was toying with was saying basically he needs his own terminology. Um, because he's a he's a he's he's a genuine progressive. I I don't think that's debatable. Um, he's a progressive that finds himself in the midst of a very difficult political economic situation. You know, the table was set by Mike Bloomberg, and he comes in and he sits at it, and there and he's accompanied by a lot of people from the business real estate community who who hold a lot of cards and who are. Uh, used to having a very accommodating mayor uh, who really speaks their language. Um, he has to do business with them. They are, whether we like to believe it or not, that is the permanent government of New York, and that's what any mayor has to do with, deal with. Um, one of the things that uh, is an important theme of the book has to do with um, the future of progressivism in urban environments uh, and what's possible. You know, as I said to him when I met with him, and we spent five hours together, uh, un- uninterrupted, except by members of his family who came down to join us. Um, it's very, this is to me is a big question today about the future of progressivism in urban environments because. The history we know and that I tell in the in the book is goes back to LaGuardia, who had Franklin Roosevelt in Washington to help him out, and Lindsay, who had lots of assistance from Lyndon Johnson. He never had that kind of assistance, even before the last election. By the time Bill de Blasio arrives at City Hall, the the federal government is kind of checked out. And when we talk about redistributive policies, by that time, they're redistributing in the other direction. If you look at, and I spent a lot of time writing about this in the book, um, if you look at changes in um, federal policy towards taxation or regulation, um, it really moved things in the opposite direction. And by the way, Democrats were complicit in that the same way Republicans were. And so what you have now is a situation where, where mayors have to try to come up with a progressive agenda 
in a very um, difficult political environment, which has only gotten horribly, unimaginably worse since January. And so, I mean, that's an important part of the story I'm trying to tell here. And it's even more important when you look at other cities. So, so, de Blas- so de Blasio's dilemma is he comes up with a housing plan. Three out of four dollars have to come from the private sector to make it work. Three out of four. Um, right. That, that I mean that that they, lack of federal investment there yeah. is so, is striking, and that's obviously. When I confronted him with it, his his attitude was, "Well, I'm a lot I'm a lot better off than I might have been because at least we have." We're in a city that's growing. Um, if we were in Detroit, if we were in another city um, that was struggling, um, the situation would be very different. And so, to me, this is the big question, the big governmental question that we have to deal with looking at this analytically. Um, what is the future of progressivism when Washington has bailed out? And by the way, it bailed out before Trump. Now, I don't, I don't even know what, what word to use to define uh, what's going on now, um, but so, we're not getting, I mean, we, we have a cabin of people who don't believe in the missions of their own agencies. Right, that's for sure. That's the situation we're dealing with now. Yeah. So, so um, does, by definition, does progressivism necessitate huge influxes of money to, you know, sort of make up for inequities in society that have that have resulted from years of, um, you know, laissez-faire, more laissez-faire capitalism. Um, you know, I think one of the most interesting things about de Blasio that some people are pointing out is that he's, not only did he have this amazing timing for his message after 12 years of a Bloomberg, but he also came in with a booming New York City economy, could he, could de, could a Bill De Blasio really be successful with a mediocre or a or an economy that's struggling? I think that's the big question. I mean, uh, this is a this is a book that's written three years into his administration, so I don't think you can make a final judgment on it. What I think we can say is we see an, a, a mayor who's obviously re- redirected priorities, but. Um, that's the bigger governmental question that goes beyond New York to me. And um, history has shown us that the, 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 the real success in, in advancing a progressive agenda, which means that government has a role in helping people who are struggling and redistributing income. Um, a big role, right? Really, a really big, big role. The New Deal and the Great Society. We haven't seen that happen in other circumstances. And so if, you, if history is, 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 teaches us anything, you need a federal role. And I can, go, I can walk you through all kinds of scenarios, which I'm sure you're familiar with already, which we know that the federal government has more capacity to redistribute resources than local governments do. Because if local governments start doing that, what you, what you have is what you had, had during the 1970s and 1980s where if you try to come up with with more progressive taxation, you wind up losing businesses and population. And so and cities play that game against each other. So we went through a period of time where, you know, the great cities of the Northeast were competing with new cities in the Southwest, and the cities in the Northeast were losing in terms of population 
and in terms of business. Right. So do we need a federal input? We, I think we certainly, I think history has said we do. So let me um, push back maybe a little bit, or maybe you agree with this, let's see. Bill de Blasio, to me and to many others, has a lot of sort of trademarks of sort of a typical machine politics Democrat. Um, you know, labor unions, he's worried about key voting blocks, and he sometimes twists himself around to accommodate those voting blocks, as you note uh, at different parts of the book. Um, and it seems like he makes a lot of political decisions based on, you know, politics, um, a lot of government decisions based on politics. So can't, can't we sort of point to him as a, as a fairly typical machine Democrat? He's typical in the sense that um, he's figured out that you can't have a progressive agenda without the support of organized labor. And uh, anybody who thinks you can is not paying attention to history. And so he's, his great wall of defense is organized labor. He, he doesn't get along with every labor union leader, but by and large, organized labor supports him. He came in and settled contracts, which were left unsettled, which he should have done, by the way. Sure. Um, but he's a believer in that, too. I mean, I don't think... I think he believes in it. So yeah. look at yeah. his history. Look right. at his early involvement in that book. Um, he's, he's always had a close association with organized labor, Dennis Rivera and others who, 1199, who were very strong supporters of him all along, most of the way. Um, so that, in that sense, he's conventional. Um, conventional old term, really. But the conventions of the Democratic Party today are not progressive in the sense that he is. The conventions of the Democratic Party today are very good on issues of race and gender and rights and things like that. But when it comes to what he calls economic... Uh, populism, they're not there yet. Bernie Sanders was. Elizabeth Warren seems to be. But in that sense, he's, he's not the usual Democratic politician. What used to be usual is unusual now. And so when we talk about him trying to save the soul of New York, He's trying to go back to that period, and and the and the and one of my favorite chapters in the book, uh, called "The Soul of New York," takes us back to LaGuardia and what it meant to have a progressive government designed to help people. Um, that's where he's taking us back, uh, and that's not conventional anymore. I guess what I guess, and that makes perfect sense to me, and it absolutely ties into the. 2016 presidential election, as you reference with the Bernie Sanders uh, mention. And so that's one of the fascinating things about de Blasio that goes back to maybe my first question, which is, you know, he's really good on racial and gender equity, and he's really good on economic populism. And so that's sort of what continues to keep me wondering why he's not more popular. Um, but, but we don't need to, you know, keep beating that drum. But you talk about Bernie Sanders there. Did you get a sense, or do you have a sense, that if he had had his druthers, he would have come out big and bold behind Bernie Sanders in, in 2016? Or 
did he is he such a pragmatist that he just knew right from right from the start that he was going to be a Hillary Clinton supporter um, and it just was about sort of trying to influence the dialogue the way he held out his his support there you know he talked a lot about that when I met with him and um, when I first confronted him with it I didn't know how he would respond and he was really very open about it um, he was torn uh, he was torn, uh, and this is, to me, it's a great, go look at the book, look at the section of the book. It's a great window on who he is. Um, Absolutely. And what his character is. He's an insider-outsider guy. It's very complicated. And so the outsider guy is the progressive, and um, a lot of people are that progressive they really don't enter government. They stay on the outskirts of government, and they get involved in advocacy groups and organizations like that. He kind of jumps into the political process, and he's in it. Um, what's, um, what's interesting about him is that he tries to kind of play it on both sides, and I don't mean that as a criticism. He needs to. And the whole Hillary issue, um, the way he explained it to me, is that he had a certain loyalty to her and felt like he couldn't turn his back on her. Um, and this is the this is the this is the what I would call the mainstream politician in him. Um, that people who function in a political environment Loyalty is a very important thing, and it's considered a noble thing. And so he's, he's worked with Bill Clinton's re-election campaign. He was a state coordinator. He runs Hillary's Senate campaign, which didn't end ex- ex- exactly where they might have wanted to because what he revealed to me was real tensions within that campaign between the economic progressives and the mainstreams. And as he explained it to me, the, the mainstream people won out. And that became more of a tense situation for him at the end of that campaign, even though he was running it. Right. Um, So he gets to 2016, and he really, I think he really believed he could push her in a more uh, progressive direction on economic issues. Um, It may have been naive on his part. It may have been uh, over, uh, over valuing what a new a mayor could do, and uh, even in New York, um, whatever it was, I think it was a very difficult point for him. He also said to me that he thought, in the end, even though he liked Bernie Sanders and obviously agreed with the agenda, he thought Hillary would be a, a better president because of the experience she brought to it, and that's the way he explained it to me. Um, but it was, I thought it was a very telling episode, um, and I use it in a book, I think, as a real, a real uh, window on who he is, as what his character is. And, you know, this certain, and I, I associate it to his, his mother's influence and in this southern Italian uh, suspicion of government, um, that um, in the end, you, you, you've got to, be very careful because government doesn't always, in fact, you might say doesn't usually do the right thing towards people who are suffering because the system is set up 
so that people who have power are the ones who, uh, the people with influence are the ones who benefit, and the people who benefit are the ones who have influence. Um, and that's just the way it, ru- it works. So, so uh, we're here with uh, a few more minutes uh, with Joseph Vitteritti, the author of The Pragmatist, Bill de Blasio's Quest to Save the Soul of New York, coming out shortly from Oxford University Press. Uh, Mr. Vitteritti is a public policy professor at Hunter College of CUNY and chair of the Urban Policy and Planning Department there. Um, so just a few more questions for you on, on the book and on de Blasio. Um, and there's so much more for us to talk about, but maybe another time. And I know you have some public events coming up to talk about the book and, and the mayor. Um, what is, what is stand, other than the federal partnership issue, are there things of the mayor's own making? Are there flaws that he has that, are, that have hamstrung him? Um, from my vantage point, because I'm covering him on a daily basis and I'm at a lot of his press conferences, you know, I see his strained relationship with the City Hall Press Corps as something that has gotten in his way a bit but are there things that that you have identified that have really held him back um there there must be a problem with getting his message out because as you started this conversation you know if he's done all these things why is he having such a problem with uh you know uh public opinion polls so there must be a an issue of him needing to communicate his message better. I don't know how he does that. Um, He's identified that himself multiple times as a... Yeah, I guess he has. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's that's difficult. That's um, something he needs to work on and the people around him need to work on. I mean, in some ways he's had a luxury of not having a real opponent. And, And by the way, I think that's unfortunate. I think a democracy is always better when you have choices and when you have a variety of people running uh, who, who are able to force us all to deal with issues that are important. Um, and it's unfortunate that's not the case now. Uh, it works well for him. But again, I, I go back you know, we have a short memory. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when people would say what anybody really want to contest Mike Bloomberg with all the money he has, you wouldn't think it was the same city, really. So now, then you, and I write about this in the book also, then you had a, a billionaire mayor who was foreboding to oppose, although Billy Thompson made a gallant effort to do it uh, the last time out, um, who surround themselves with money. And now you have a progressive mayor who is foreboding in terms of challenging him, surround themselves with organized labor. What a, think about this is the same city. Right. And we're, we're not that, and you know, this is three, this is not that long ago. I mean, to me, that's the interesting story here. Uh, and that um, this is the story of New York coming back to its roots, New York finding its soul. Um, Will it be um, a, a, an election that will change the, the politics of the city for the long term, as Ed Koch's election did? Uh, it remains to be seen, but given the, given the fact that you have a progressive mayor and a city council that goes deep into the neighborhoods and communities of New York, 
um, there's something alive here. And one of the interesting things about the 2000, um, the 2013 election, um, and if you look at the my analysis of it, he was the only candidate who really came out strongly against the Bloomberg agenda um, and was intrepid about talking about class and income when the other Democrats tiptoed around it and were kind of saying, we're going to give you Bloomberg light, we're going to give you a different version of Bloomberg that's a little more sensitive to the needs of people. He was he, The way I described the election of 2013, de Blasio ran against Bloomberg. Right, certainly. And no. he, was the, he was the only guy who figured that out, that it turned out to be a very... Uh, uh, practical, I guess you might say, pragmatic, uh, but also uh, anchored in a progressive tradition. Uh, it was a winning. It was a winning uh, formula for him. No, I, I think so. I mean, I think, I do think, and I know you've addressed this before, but I do think, you know, John Liu had elements of that, but he was eventually hamstrung by the campaign finance uh, issues and the, the scan- scandal. Yeah, but right, of, of de Blasio, Thompson, and Quinn, that's certainly the case, and it was sort of remarkable, as others have pointed out, that Thompson, the, you know, African-American candidate in the in the race, wasn't uh, speaking to African Americans and and even you know other people of color in the city the way De Blasio did, um, so so finally uh, to to wrap up this conversation with you and I'd love to talk to you <laughs> much more. Um, what where is Bill De Blasio heading here? I mean I know this is you know sort of a silly question, but I think assuming there's a reelection, you know he might have some real gains in a second term. He's probably also going to have some challenges economically because, you know, for the for the city to to continue the way it's been is highly unlikely. We've already seen some signs of slowdown in tax receipts and such. But um, is this someone who, you know, some people say he's he was more designed to be a senator anyway. You know, is this is this someone who's sort of going to be a senator at some point? I mean, obviously that requires something of a vacancy in New York, but you know, where where do you see him uh, in the future? It's probably something you should ask him rather than me. I, I will, I will. Um, he's going to be around for a while. I, th- I think he's on a mission. Uh, where that mission takes him, I'm not sure. I think minimally, as the mayor of New York City, he will be a voice in the Democratic Party. Uh, and try to move the party in a direction that's more aligned with what the kinds of things Bernie Sanders talked about uh, than where they have been and where they've remained. Um, uh, that's what I see him. That's what I see in him. How that plays out in terms of public office, it, it's it's got to be very speculative at this point because, as you said, it really has to do with what vacancies there are and where he finds himself. Um, and it's very hard to, to discuss that kind of thing. He at the uh, just a quick follow up to that. He at the first uh, Democratic primary debate ruled out the idea of running for president in twenty twenty. That's yeah, not, that. yeah, that's not the kind of promise you know that you can't go back on if you really wanted to. What is it? Yeah, do you think that's something that's on his radar? I mean, I get the sense from him that he does 
he does think in those ways, that he does think that he should be the standard bearer for the Democratic Party nationally. Um, you know, his 2013 campaign in some ways was a model for 2016 that, you know, wasn't exactly followed, although Bernie Sanders was close. Um, and he he railed against his own party in 2014 for not running more of a, a economically populist message in the elections of 2014 for Congress. Um, so do you think he sees himself as that type of national player where a presidential bid wouldn't be totally out of the question? You know, my feeling about politics, I'm a political scientist, anybody who runs for their local school board has this fantasy. <laughs> president. Okay? Right. Well, you need to come to terms. Once you come to terms with that, then you don't uh, outrule anything. Um... Who knows? Yeah, anybody, and, and any people who run for public office always are looking at the next stage. Um, he's made a commitment here, and we'll see. I um, think. I mean, I do think. You know, though, it's hard to say. You know, I, I, we've never had a mayor go on to be president. Uh, we've had governors who have gone to be president. Um, who knows? We've never had the likes of what we have now in the White House either. So after this, all bets are off. I mean, right. who knows what could happen? Um, but it's it's too it's really very speculative and it's not it it can't be the function of serious analysis at this point because there are too many variables at play that uh, you just don't know. Sure, but it but it's fu it's fun. It's a little bit of fun. Yeah, of course, it's, <laughs> that's why we do this. Yes, no, thank you. So so uh, Joseph uh, Vitteridi, thank you so much for for talking with us and. Um, Everyone should look for The Pragmatist, Bill de Blasio's quest to save the soul of New York. Uh, thanks, and talk to you soon. Thank you, Ben. Okay.